And I said, Lowell, this is what I want to do. I need you to give me a million dollars in diamonds. He said, I don't give my wife a million dollars in diamonds. <laughs> I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to StoryMark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, founder and former CEO of the Stuart Weitzman Shoe Company, Stuart Weitzman. Stuart Weitzman is a household name. That's because of the brand Stuart Weitzman. Stuart Weitzman the person, that's a different story. I sat down to talk to the Stuart, a trend-setting entrepreneur, creative director, and CEO who pioneered some of the biggest innovations in the footwear industry, and who is beloved by celebrities from Aretha Franklin to the Kardashians. From his modest East Coast beginnings, where he worked side-by-side side with his father and brother, all the way to rubbing elbows with the world's biggest stars, Stuart has always been steadfast in his vision, with himself, his company, and his family. And that is what I'm most inspired by in him. That Stuart trusts himself to get where he needs to go. This self-reliance actually started quite early in his life. As Stuart's father owned a shoe factory, it seemed reasonable that after graduating high school, Stuart would end up there. And while the young Weitzman eventually made his way back to the shoe industry, at the time, confident, smart, and full of energy, Stuart had other plans. Well, I chose to apply to business schools, and I got into one, the Wharton School. I was a pretty independent kid, and I didn't really pay much attention to try to be the smartest guy in school. It just happened that I was, and my goal was to break the bank on Wall Street. Quite honestly, I love that kind of world, the stock market, finance. So when you were at school, did you still think you're going to go to Wall Street or... Yes, I did, until the last year. What happened? I think something like this happens to everybody. You just have to notice it. One day, I was taking classes in a pattern-making school because in the summers, I would work in my father's shoe factory. That was not going to be my career, but I was working there. I wanted to learn a little bit about the pattern making and at least have some knowledge. And I met a, a boy who was in my class whose father had a shoe factory in Brooklyn. And he said to me, gee, you draw so beautifully. Why don't you draw some shoe sketches? Maybe my father will buy them from you. And I said, you know, I never drew any shoes, but how about if you give me his catalog? I'll see what he makes, gives me an idea who he sells it to, and maybe I can draw some things that fit into his design. And I drew 20 sketches. Now, we went and went over to his house to meet his father and show the sketches. And I laid them out on a table like you would a deck of cards. And he picked one up. He looked at it. And he turned to me and he said, I need to know who you copied this from. Wow. Well, since I didn't, it wasn't a shocking statement. Didn't turn red because of it, because it was my sketch. I said, you know, I looked at your catalog, and that shoe inspired me to make this shoe that I thought might go to the same customer. And then he took the sketch, he put it up to the lights over the dining room table. And he said, looks to me, I see heavy impression. You traced this from some other shoe. I said, no, I didn't, sir. And I realized he wasn't going anywhere with me. So I started to <laughs> gather them up, and uh, he still has this one in his hand. And he tore it up. Wow. Rolled it up into a ball, threw it on the floor. And I, um, I didn't know what to say. I mean, it's like, you never really can hear a pin drop. I think that day we, 
I and my friend could have heard a pin drop. And he said to me, um, you going to tell me the same thing about these others? I said, yes, sir. I drew them, inspired by your catalog and no one else. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 20 bucks a sketch. They took me, it wasn't an hour. To draw all of them, one hour? Yeah, because they're pencil sketches. I drew them quickly, like three minutes each one, maybe. And um, I thought, holy mackerel, we're paying $3,700 for the whole year in tuition. Can you imagine? Today, it's like, what, $70,000? And I just made $380. I thought, hmm, okay. And I asked him if he'd like any more. He said, yeah, you know, I may buy some. I mean, I'll take in all of these to start, but that's all right. You can keep sending them to me. You're standing at this guy's house. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> you imagine tearing up that sketch. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're 20 years old. The guy's 50 years old. Most people that I know on this earth would take their stuff and just well, leave. Well, I started to put it in a pile, but, you know. We Weren't you, like, deeply insulted? No, uh, he didn't like it, I thought. Or he didn't believe my explanation, but I just thought he didn't like it. And he was a gruff old guy. He was a European immigrant and struggled to have his own little factory. And I didn't judge him. I didn't say, screw you. I mean, I'm 20 years old. I'm sitting there with my friend. I was invited to this opportunity. When, oh my God. I wasn't even thinking to be uh, nasty back to him. But it was quite a shock to me that that kind of money was paid for creativity of footwear. I mean, I'm not Picasso, right? But that's the way it was. And um, I um, told my guidance counselor he didn't need to pursue that internship for me at Goldman Sachs. I was going to try a year of the fashion world. Now I want to tell you something. You know the one he tore up through on the floor, the 20th one? He didn't pay me for that. It still bothers me today. Because I bet when I left that house, he unrolled it and pasted it back together. <laughs> Should have gotten $400 from him that day. You're a man, obviously, and starting in the shoe business for women. You know, at the time, there was no men's shoe business. Women were buying about 13 pair a year wow. on average in the USA. You know how many men the average for men was when I started my business? One. One and a half. <laughs> I said, so who the heck wants to be in the men's shoe business? Now it's different. The sneaker world, men, there are men who have 10, 15 pair of sneakers, you know? That changed years ago, not when I started. <laughs> So with uh, our uh, iTrix uh, COO and CPO, um, I have to admit that I only learned about the Stuart Weitzman company after I met with you a few years ago. Well, listen, you don't look like you wear high heels. I mean, I don't see you on weekends, but uh, (laughs) since you're you're not in my market, uh, you know, why would you? (laughs) So how did you, by the way, how did you first start working in the industry? Went to work for my father. I said, you know, let me try it out. He and my brother were partners in this business. He passed away, unfortunately. So I worked for my brother for a couple of years, too. And then I looked to launch my own career because we decided we're not going to keep this plant going in Massachusetts. The whole industry is closed. Everyone's moving to Europe. I don't want to be the last one. We were pretty much the last one. And I went to work for this company that was public. Well, my brother, he wanted to go work for this company, too. And I remember he said to me, I'm not going to work for that guy unless he pays me X amount of money, which today would be about a half a million. He was 28 years old. I said, they think they're going to pay you that? He says, that's what I'm going to demand. Well, the guy was a sharp entrepreneur, the owner. And he said, you're that good? He says, yes, I am. You'll be paying me more as years go on. So I'll tell you what, you got it. You believe that much in yourself? I'll buy in for a year. 
the end of the year. We'll see how it went. He said, you're going to have to pay me more. Sure, you don't want more years than one? So said, yeah, we'll do a year. If I have to pay you more, I'll be happy because you're that good. Of course, he was let go at the end of the year. And I said to um, the owner in my own separate negotiation, you don't make a higher level shoe. You make a wonderful fashion shoe. It's catered to a younger market, let's say midway between cheap and expensive. And I think that I could create a whole new division for you just below the super expensive shoes. So I could be like the early price point for someone to buy who's not super rich. He says, you know what it costs to start a whole new division? I said, listen, I'm going to make it easy for you. You don't have to pay me anything. I just like $200 a week. It'll cover my rent with my wife. And he said, you'll sign an agreement for that? I said, yeah. I said, this is all I want. $200, 8% of the volume. If we do nothing, costs you nothing. And I'll be responsible for the control of the product and the design. If I have to hire It'll come out of my 8%. Hmm. You got a deal. And he wanted a five-year deal at those terms. On the third year, I was making more money than him. Than him, your boss. Than the owner of the company, yeah. Wow. I think I was written up as the highest paid executive in the shoe industry at that time. So we were doing $35 million in three years. Wow. You know what 8% of that is. You know how many designers I hired? How many do you think? Three? None. <laughs> Technicians? None. Where did you have the confidence to offer that deal? The guy loved my sketches. And I thought, if they're that good that this guy's paying money for them, and he's a shoe factory that Bergdorf bought from, and Saks, and you know. The best store in New York was called I. Miller on 57th Street. I even saw one of my shoes in the window, this shoe that I sketched. And I thought, this looks like my shoe. And I looked inside, and sure enough, it had his brand name in it. I went inside, and she said, oh, yeah, we're doing great with the shoe. In fact, we just placed a reorder. That was it. It was exciting to feel that women were loved what I was making. Yeah. So I think you said in 79, you... In 79, we started this division, but in 86, I bought them out. Got it. They, they weren't doing anything for us. They had just had the money. You get a little upset giving people money they don't do any work for. I never bought into, well, they put up the money. Uh, they're not doing any work. So we negotiated a buyout and I hold the cards because I said, hey, want to buy me out? <laughs> what are we going to do without you? Well, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to stay here with you. So let's come to a price. I'm going to start something else. So we own the Stuart Weitzman name. I said, yeah, all right. I got Elizabeth, my daughter, and I got this. I got Jane. I got the Weitzman family. I don't know. And we made a deal. It was not easy. Hmm. We made it. You named the company the Stuart Weitzman Company. Yes. What was the reason for that? Well, at the time, uh, the designers had credibility. Calvin Klein, and Donna Karen, Ralph Lauren. It wasn't abstract names. In today's young market, abstract names work. And anyway, um, I just mentioned three people. They were all Jewish. Huh. You know, one of them changed his name, but not to sell product because in the army, they called him shit all the time because his name was Lipschitz. So it became Lauren. But uh, Calvin didn't change his name, Donna Karen. It didn't seem like ethnicity mattered, and it didn't. One year, we sold more shoes in Texas than anywhere else. Huh. I even fitted Queen Elizabeth, went to the castle and fitted her with shoes. I think I was the only Jewish man maybe to uh, have been in her boudoir where she has, gets dressed. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so my own company began in 1986. People heard about how comfortable they were. That was my thing, to make them not just fashionable, but really feel good, because most people didn't bother with that when they made shoes. They wanted the look. 
I wanted the look and the comfort. Where, where did you get this idea? I mean, oh, obviously you're listen, a man. Let me and- tell you something. I'm looking at all the numbers because I was also the CEO and creative director. And we did an analysis. How many new people came in to buy our product? We divided that into what we spent. It came to $8,000 per new customer. And I said to my marketing woman, how do our shoes feel on your foot? Like all the others, you know, we suffer a little bit to look good. I said, that's going to end. I said, we're not going to spend that kind of money to get a woman in, have her unsatisfied because it hurts her, tell her friends it hurts her. No, no, I want her to tell her friends, you know, these shoes are so unbelievably comfortable, I can't believe it. And that was when I dedicated 50% of my creativity to engineering the shoe. That's the key. Our number one sandal, the sandal that changed the industry, called the nudist, it's a little stripping sandal with a, an ankle strap, a little strip in the front, a little strip in the back. How do you keep it on the foot? took me two and a half hours to come up with a final sketch and three months to engineer it. We kept tweaking it and fixing it until my assistant, my director, who helped me in creating the collection and also was the person who approved every shoe, she was a cool girl and she would go, I love that one. I knew that would be the winner. She said, we finally got it. <laughs> so the trigger for all of that was basically financial. Yeah, it was practical. I mean, what the heck are you making a shoe for that's gorgeous when if you put enough effort in, you can also make it feel good and save that customer? Let me tell you something. You go to the internet and you put nudist the shoe. It was described by the number one critic of red carpet fashion as the shoe that changed the way the actresses dress. I bet you a third of the girls are wearing that shoe. Still, everybody's copied it. I saw in a magazine, I think it was People, Calvin Klein dress and Stuart Weitzman shoe on this Jessica Beale. And I showed it to Jessica Jane. That's not our shoe. That's a copy by Calvin Klein. But we're so known for the shoe that the writer didn't even check. How did you spread brand awareness for Stuart Weitzman Company? Well, the first and most significant thing I did was go after celebrities. Early, early in my career, I had met stylists, and I called them up and said, if you have an actress for an event that needs something to match well, I can do it. This stylist said, you know, I'm, uh, I just signed uh, Aretha Franklin. She didn't have to tell me who Aretha Franklin was, right? But she said she was nominated for Grammy, and she'll be going there. I have a fabulous dress I've picked out. How about if I send you a picture of it, and you send me some sketches? And it was a lace dress, a chiffon, discreetly covered underneath, not like Rihanna wears today, but that was a different world then. And I made a, a shoe out of a lace, trimmed with a Swarovski on a proper heel, sexy cut. The stylist loved it, and Aretha did too. And to my fortune, she won the Grammy. So she's up on stage, and she's got the Grammy in her left hand. She takes off her shoes, and she has them in her right hand. And you see the label inside that says Stuart Weitzman. And she's thanking her agent and her mother. And you know what they do, right? And she says, but I also want to thank Stuart Weitzman. 13 million people are watching this. What? want to thank Stuart Weitzman for making me these beautiful but oh-so-comfortable shoes. Why did she do that? Did you pay her to, do, to say that? No, she didn't get any money. I said to the stylist, I'm glad she loves it, and I hope it works well for her. 
when they ask her on the red carpet whose dress she's wearing, which they will, and whose jewelry is on her, which they will, they're not going to ask about the shoes. They rarely do. Maybe she could just add, oh, and by the way, my shoes are by Stuart Weitzman. And the stylist said, I'll see what I can do. That's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you think that they're not going to ask her about the shoes? They never asked about shoes. Why is that? First of all, it was the hair, Cartier's jewelry or Tiffany, whatever. And the dress is the main feature. And is it Valentino? Is it Dior? Is it Gucci? Or whatever. And they run out of time. Then a new celebrity walks by and says, oh, Angelina, come over here. And it's, the shoes don't get... But this time they did. Is it still the case or did, oh, did it change the industry? that whole thing changed the industry. They began to show the feet huh. together with the entire outfit. <laughs> In 2002, you famously created a million-dollar shoe. What was the story was behind marketing. that one? It was totally marketing. I thank my wife a great deal for that. She uh, helped us hire a PR guy out in L.A. And this guy, he said, we've got to do something great, exciting. And I said, why don't we make the most expensive shoe ever made? They, they'll, they'll have to write a story about it. And I went to someone I knew well. The Quiat family, by the way, wonderful Jewish immigrants from Hungary who have a huge jewelry business today. And I said, Lowell, this is what I want to do. I need you to give me a million dollars in diamonds. He said, I don't give my wife a million dollars in diamonds. I said, no, well, look, you're going to get great PR. We're going to tell everyone they're Quiat diamonds. I told him the story. He says, this is, I'm too old for this. Talk to my son. And it's Greg, uh, the son, bought into it. And so did their sales manager. And we made this shoe in their jewelry shop right here in New York. And we decided, let's not seek out a queen, because she's going to be worried about her crown. Like Haley Berry was nominated for Best Actress. Great to have her, but she ain't going to pay attention to the shoes. So we engaged Laura Lena Herring, one of the two stars of Mulholland Drive, a David Lynch film. Very unusual film, nominated for Best Director. She was so excited about these shoes. She pulled up her dress. She showed them off. It was in 380 newspapers, that photograph wow. of her pulling up her Armani dress and showing the shoe. And that shoe has, is still talked about. By 2010, uh, the Sturt Weitzman Company had 700 employees, 80 stores globally, $375 million in annual revenues. And no, in 2010, it was about $335, I would say. Wow. To be accurate. You remember, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you remember the numbers well. You eventually ended up selling the company. A few times. A few times. <laughs> What was the feeling when you no longer had shares in the company? I was so happy that I thought I had found a good future home for it so that it would have an ongoing life. It wasn't about cashing in and going away and play golf or tennis. No. The last time I was more confident than ever because they're a... Uh, what, $5 billion business on the New York Stock Exchange, extremely successful in bags, a product related to footwear, Coach. And I left it with them. Are you happy that a company having your name is still... Oh, well, I think it's great. Women still, they don't know that I'm not there. Oh, I love the new shoe you just had on Jennifer Aniston or the new one on Angelina or... <laughs> <laughs> so that's fascinating for you. Um, you describe luxury products as a religion. What do you mean by that? For some women, it is. I mean, I don't know if you ever heard of Imelda Marcos. I did not. She was the first lady of the Philippines. Well, let me just put it this way. There is now a museum totally dedicated to her shoes, 3,600 pair. Wow. And we joked around in our industry, but it was really serious. If your name wasn't in some of those shoes in the closet, then you're not in the shoe industry. 
And women today say, oh, I'm like an Imelda. I have 300 pair. I have 200 pair. And it becomes their passion. We had a uh, successful show here. It's on rerun and making a movie, I think, called Sex in the City. Right. Boy, did they make shoes important. Every other episode was about Carrie's shoes. Yeah. I, it's I indoctrination. And it doesn't mean that they think God helped them get the shoes. Right. Uh, but maybe the shoes substituted for God because they don't believe in him. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about your leadership journey, what personal characteristic do you think led to your success, both in business and in life? It was very clear to me where I had to go, where we as a company or a family had to go. But I did things in a different way. I'll give you an example. I wanted my children to be my best friends. We began to travel together. But it's one thing to say, gee, let's take a little vacation. And you prepare for it, and it's great. Or to say, let's go to the airport. Let's take the first flight out, wherever the heck it goes. Doesn't matter. Really, Daddy? I named it Airport Roulette. (laughs) And that's how we ended up in Reykjavik in Iceland or in the Canary Islands. And I remember there was a city called Bergen. I went up to the counter with my little girl. Two tickets quick, we need to, because there was no security in those days. I said, uh, by the way, uh, where is Bergen? (laughs) She said, what do you you mean, where is Bergen? You just asked for, I said, yeah, I know. Is there anything to do there other than visit the concentration camp? Educate them on that too. I wasn't upset about it. She said, may I see your passport? And young lady, do you have your own passport? She took up both our papers. Go in the back, out comes the director. He thinks I'm kidnapping my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) And then when we told her what we were doing, and it's the first flight, I don't know, you know, it's Bergen night. She says, it's gorgeous. It's in the fjords of Norway. We (laughs) ate so much smoked salmon. The kids never forget that stuff. So there's an example of my goal was to make them my best friends. Every day I told them I love them. And kids need to hear that. They really do. Every day, oh, my angel baby, I love you so much. Did your parents tell you that they love you? No. And I never noticed it. I grew up, I told you, independently. I applied to college on my own. When the application came back, I gave it to my dad. I said, they need uh, $1,700. For what? I said, well, I'm going to go to this school called the Wharton School. In Philly? Oh, oh, great. Okay. And he sent the check in. It's not like today. And a lot of people maybe led similar lives. And it's not that I was, we were unique, but we were not normal. <laughs> and I don't do what I do because of the way I grew up at all. It's just the way I feel. I have a few uh, questions that we ask all of our guests. What piece of advice do you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? Here's a lesson I tell everybody I talk to. The most beneficial thing I ever did for my career and the life I loved because of it was going to work for someone else. I realized that I was not graduating from Pratt or FIT. I was graduating from the Wharton School. What the heck did I learn in the Wharton School that directly will help me in my business? I was going to learn the shoe business by working at it. And I'm going to work for a company that I picked like I picked my university. And you know, when I left after a bunch of years. I had the education I needed. More important than anything, I met people that I was able to take with me. And I felt like when we started our company, I had a great financial guy, a terrific person in PR, a wonderful, wonderful sales manager, and me, the creative director. And we were like in business for years already. There was no startup. In the first year, in fact, we did really a fair amount of business. I think it was $13 million. 
we were running. We weren't even walking. We had done our walking, working at, for this other company. And that's why I tell students, pick a company like you would pick your university. But more so if you're going into an industry that you don't really learn in university. Work for someone else. It's a great way to start something on your own. Amazing. What's the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? I don't hear what, how people judge me. I don't know. Uh, I will tell you this. When young guys think they're going to wipe me off the ping pong table, they get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit that you told me that you're uh, competing at the Maccabiya games in yeah, Israel, really, and you yeah. inspired me to start uh, playing ping pong, but you told me, don't embarrass yourself. <laughs> so I think I'm going to wait uh, 10 more years before we're no, going to play. No, if you really determine there are ways to better yourself. There's that movie about the Williams sisters. The father didn't let those kids play a tournament till they had hit a million balls. So when they showed up at 15, their strokes were perfect. And it's with any sport. So you want to play ping pong, you better hit a million balls first. What are you uh, currently obsessed with? My physical activity. I do three hours of physical training or physical therapy every day. Every day. I used to do 25 push-ups every morning. I haven't been able to do one yet. So uh, that's my obsession right now. <laughs> What are you most optimistic about? Every class I give, I am awed by the talent and intelligence of the students. Nothing like that existed when I was at Penn. There was one kid, two geniuses. The most of it was, hey, what are we doing at the fraternity house Saturday night kind of thing. Today... Their college is only half of what they do in those youthful years. That is inspiring. So yes, our young people who are being educated in our top schools, they are our future. Will they be strong enough? Will there be enough of them? I don't know. With optimism, I think you have to be realistic and look at the other side too. Stuart, it was great to have you on our show. I love to talk, so I was glad to be here. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up and you can also follow us on Instagram at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrex Studios. iTrex is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's go. See you next time.